Is everyone okay this morning? Are you sure? Just bear with me. Bear with me as I read the last verse of that song we just sang. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. It's kind of concerning. I didn't see a lot of people. I, hear, I was up front, but I was. That's a great song. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies. Man, I'm thankful for that right there. New mercies I see. We're in Revelation chapter 9, the fifth trumpet. Two local pastors were on the side of the road fishing. And they made a sign saying, Turn yourself around now before it's too late. The end is near. And so they were going to hold it up as cars came by to warn them. And this one guy came by who didn't appreciate the sign very much. And he shouted at them, Leave us alone, you religious nuts! Then all of a sudden, both of them heard a crash of a car going in the water. And they quickly looked at each other and said, Maybe we should have put on the sign, Bridge is out. I don't know, I'm not much of a comedian, but although humorous, this story contains more truth than we care to admit. The end is, in fact, near. Although we don't know exactly how near it is for us or for those around us, our family, our friends and neighbors. But there will be a point in which it will be too late to repent. Turn around. The world around us in which we proclaim the gospel is increasingly antagonistic or opposed to Jesus. They will call us religious nuts and tell us just to leave them alone. Jesus told us this fact back in the gospels, did he not? If they hate you, remember they first hated me. If they persecute you, they first persecuted me. Now, a lot of all that, think on this. There's only six verses that describe the first four trumpets plagues back in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Only six for four trumpets. The next two trumpet plagues use over three times that space. It's to add emphasis, to correspond to the seriousness about the calamities are about to happen. It's possible that people were just discomforted earlier, but now those same people are going to be subjected to torment. Now keep in mind, these next two trumpet blasts, these plagues, if you will, are going to be horrible and destructive. But it still fails to deter survivors to turn from their wicked ways and to repent. They're unrestrained by the plagues that take place. They continue in idolatry, bloodshed, sorcery, sexual morality, and theft. You find that in the last two verses of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Even after this trumpet and the next trumpet, 
they still refuse to repent and come to God. Look at verse 1. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth. That's different than what we read back in chapter 8, verse 10, when John tells us a great star fell from heaven. This is past tense. This star has already fallen from heaven, and it's now on earth. Also in this context, this star seems to be a personal being when you look at verse 11, which we will hear in a few moments. Now, some scholars argue that this star should be identified as an angel, although the word in Greek for angel is not there. It is star, based on those two things I just talked about. They tell us that Perhaps this angel is one of those who did not keep their positions of authority or did not keep their own domain. You find that in Jude 6. Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now since this fallen angel is also presented in terms of a star with particular reference to his fallenness, Added to the fact that this star or angel exercises authority, some suggest only is this star possibly an angel, but they say it could be possibly Satan himself. And they look at Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And then 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, they cast them into hell and committed them pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, fallen is a translation of the Greek perfect active participle. I'm not trying to teach you Greek, but that's important. Why? Because not only does it indicate a past action, but it's a past action that has continuing effects into the future. Not does God so love past tense, but that love word means that God so loves the world and that can continues to go on. So when God says, I love you, it's not this action happening in the present, but that goes for all eternity is what that word uh, captures. And this star is described as fallen. And they say right there, that has to be a description of Satan. But then other scholars will come up and say, no, it's just an angel doing what he is told. Now keep that all in mind because look at the rest of verse 1. The key of the boundless pit was given to him. Now, a little translation of boundless pit is the shaft of the abyss. Now, he is given authority to unleash the horde in the abyss. And that word abyss, by the way, the root meaning is depth. Here it means without measurable depth. Now, going back to Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4 that we mentioned just a minute ago, talks about pits of darkness, being bonded. And then we come to Luke chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus cast the demons out of that man who's running around, thought he was crazy, and they tell him he's going to cast them into the pigs. But this is one thing that the demons ask of Jesus. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So let's back up. It's a star has fallen. It's on earth. Some people say it's an angel because it seems to be a personal being. And like verse 11, and in the rest of verse 1, we opens the pit. And the verse 11 tells us we have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. 
Some take that a step further and say perhaps it's the Satan himself because he's fallen. We look at texts where angels have been cast into some place of torment, awaiting the final day of judgment. We know that the final destination of them is the lake of fire, which we'll read about later in Revelation. So just follow with me. I'm trying to make sure everybody's on the same page. Now, it is conceivable, based on the the little looking that we did in Scripture, that the angels could be confined to somewhere. These fallen angels that fall in Satan could be detained someplace of ongoing judgment prior to the final adjudication of their case. Or they're being held, like Second Peter tells us, until the great day of judgment. Now, this is something that really jumped out at me, and I just want to share it with you. I thought about the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus tells. People will argue it's a parable. Some will say, no, Jesus pulled back the curtains of eternity for us for just a moment. By the way, that story takes place in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The rich man has all this wealth and food to eat. Lazarus is poor. He has sores. We're told that the dogs lick his sores. He's wanting just crumbs from the rich man's table. They both die. Well, the text presently says that Lazarus dies and he's taken up to Abraham's bosom where the rich man in the text just simply dies. And then the rich man looks up to Abraham. He says, have Lazarus dip his finger in a cup of water to cool my tongue for I'm in torment. And of course, he says, no, we cannot do that. There's a, a chasm between us. And you can't come here and we can't go there. So here's the point. If it's concealed that fallen angels were put somewhere until final judgment, could that happen to us as human beings? I'm not arguing one way or the other. I think that's something we need to look at. Because that gives to a bigger conversation. What exactly happens when you pass away from this life? Where do you go? Now, I just opened a whole can of worms that I cannot address in the time I have today. But I want you to start thinking about that as we continue on. Now, there's no mention who gave him the key. Possibly could have been the angel had the trumpet, we don't know. Or how the key was presented. No matter how that happened, he's still operating under the sovereignty of God himself. Only the Lord God has that authority. And you see that same picture back in the book of Job to a conversation that happens between God and Satan that Job has no idea took place. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And basically Satan says, he's doing all these things to serve you because you bless him so well. Take that away, he'll curse you. Well, go ahead. He does that. Well, Job said, well, I came with this world with nothing. I'll go out with nothing. And he takes his loved ones. But the point I'm bringing up is Satan had to go back and forth, still getting permission, if you will, from God because God alone is sovereign. And Satan's not omnipresent like God. You can see that in the text as well. He has to go back and forth. So no matter what happens here, we look at what the star is or who he possibly is, it's still happening under the sovereignty of God. Nothing else has taken him by surprise. This is his plan. This is his mission. Now look at verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit, or the shaft of the abyss, and smoke went up. Out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, or a gigantic furnace, or a huge furnace. This is 
smoke not like a luminous cloud that indicated the presence of God in the Exodus narrative, how God would leave them by, lead them by a cloud. No, this smoke is blackening smoke, something you would get when you burn coal, for example. Once again, there's no specific mention that this abyss is a place of torment, but when you see rising smoke, and what's the old phrase? Well, you see smoke, there must be fire, but it never tells us. It does tell us the result of that smoke. Look, look at verse 2. The sun or sunlight and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Let me get that image in your mind. This bottomless pit. It has no bottom. And he opens this thing up and this smoke is so thick and so heavy that it just literally fills the air and blocks out the sunlight. Then we read in verse 3, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. I don't know much about locusts, but I came across Mounts, who's a biblical scholar, speaking about a swarm of locusts that happened historically. He describes the swarm being four miles in length and 100 feet thick. And 200,000 people died in the famine following that. And it's in 1866, the plague in Algiers. And throughout the Old Testament, locusts are a symbol of destruction. For example, Psalm 78, verse 46. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. Locusts just tear up everything. And here they come out. And in verse 3, it says, Power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. Given power authorizes the authority they have. Now, how many in here have ever been stung by a scorpion? You're well familiar with that sting, right? It's numbing, it's aching, it hurts. Now, stings from scorpions. Most of the time are not fatal. However, there's a red scorpion in India that is sufficiently toxic and sometimes can be fatal. So these locusts, and they, they can sting like scorpions. And look what they're told in verse 4. They were told or commanded not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or plant, nor any tree. Now consider this. Locusts consume leaves and tender, issue, excuse me, tender tissues of plants. That's what they do. But they're being told or commanded not to do that in this context. They're strong flyers as adults because when they're first hatched, all they can do is hop around, but they're described as tenacious hoppers as nymphs. That's when they first are hatched. They can strip the foliage and stem of plants. But with all that consideration, what locusts normally do or told us specifically not to do it. Does that strike you as odd? What's going to happen? Their destructive power is to be directed at people, but not just anybody. Look at verse 4 once again. Only the men are people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is recalling the 144,000 that we read about back in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, that come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Although they must endure many difficulties of the tribulation, 
just like the Exodus narrative, they seem to be exempt from some of the plagues. Just like when the plagues happened to the Egyptians, the necessarily didn't fall on the Israelites. Now, I know what you're thinking. After about the 144,000, he tells us about a multitude that could not be counted. But you look at that context, the multitude is already before the throne and before the Lamb. So they're not here on earth. They're up there already. That multitude. Be that as may, anybody didn't have the seal of God on their forehead is going to be subjected to what these locusts are going to do. And once again, we are, we are shown that the seal is indicative of a protected possession of the living God. In verse 5, we are told they're not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. As the scorpion holds its prey with its claws and kills with a venomous tail, the locusts possess an agonizing sting. They're given authority not to kill, but just torment. Now that five months, is that literally five months within tribulation period? Only five months? Is it being used as a metaphor, like a, a common and apocalyptic liter, uh, literature? If that's the case, number five is associated with humanity. It means this plague is only against, going against people, which is what the text is telling us anyway. So I said, let's just go with the plain meaning of the text. This plague is directed at people, specifically people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, the result of that, look in verse 6. In or during those days, men or people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them or as the international says, will elude them. That's a natural inclination for all of us in this room, of course, everybody around the planet, to protect our lives. That's the reason we have a central nervous system to cause pain. So if I put my hand on the stove, I won't let my hand burn off. I pull my hand away. That's natural self-preservation. But the text is telling us that the agony will be so great, it will be so devastating, so overwhelming, so destructive that people will actually seek death, thinking that's going to relieve their pain. Can you imagine people being stung by scorpions, not dying, being so bad that they are seeking death? Because the agony is so bad. No question that physical injury or disease creates agony and may induce a desire to die, but guilt, sorrow, addiction, failure, and perceived failure often are more devastating. And as a side note, some of you, within the sound of my voice, may be dealing with that very thing, guilt, sorrow, addiction. Quit looking for the answer out there. Come to the answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, all that stuff that you do to medicate may take away the problem, make you feel a little good. But in the morning, it'll still be there, and perhaps, depending on what you did the night before, you got so intoxicated, you just did anything. You can't remember what you did. Chances are it's going to be worse now than it was the prior day. 
You know, normally death seeks us or seeks men, we flee from it, but now that's reversed. And the text never tells us if they're successful in taking their own lives, but what's abundantly evident is they're seeking it, but the desire to die will be frustrated. It's ironic, is it not? They who have killed the martyrs that we see back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, are now seeking and desiring death. But God is not going to allow that to happen. They have tormented and killed, and now they're going to experience them for themselves. This is a warning text, if you haven't figured that out yet. In verses 7 through 10, we get a description of what they look like. Take a look at it. The appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle or equipped for battle. On their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Now, since the description starts with horses, might be expecting maybe a talking about a mane or something, but that's not what he does. He talks about having hair like women and teeth like the teeth of lions. But their description goes on in verses 9 and 10. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses or with many horses rushing or running to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings. Verse 10. This is clearly designed to indicate the devastation and the horror that's induced by the locust plague, which is, of course, part of the fifth trumpet. See, words can only take you so far. Look at the picture he's painting for us. Out of this thick, heavy smoke come these creatures. They are given the authority to torment, not to kill. And that's exactly what they do. They don't go out eating the plants and the trees. They torment people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abandon. In the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Abandon means destruction, and the Greek name Apollyon means to utterly destroy or to kill. And people use that to tell us that this is speaking about Satan. Once again, you see, this, you see the description of Satan as known as destroy or destruction. You see, dearly beloved, you probably know this already, we have an enemy that's very powerful and very crafty in what he does. But he has one mission, and it's to destroy you and your family and everything about you. That's what he does. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And he will use everything and anything in his power to trip you up and make you fall and make you fail. As Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, destroy, and to kill. And the only way we can defeat him is through Christ. You take him on your own, you will fail. Concerning thing about that, not only will you fail, but people around you, perhaps your family members, children, spouse, will fail right along with you. 
I had a hard time really putting in the words about this verse, but I came across Jay Walward, and this is what he said. This is his words, not mine. In his commentary, he wrote, quote, Such is the character of Satan and those who affiliate with him as wicked or fallen angels. Though in the modern world, Satan often appears as an angel of light in the role of that which is good and religious, here the mask is stripped away and evil is seen in its true character. Satan and the demons are seen as destroyers of the souls of men and as those who can only bring affliction. When divine restraint is released, as in this instance, the true character of the evil one is manifested immediately. End of quote. In verse 12, basically, look at it for yourself. Look what it says. The first row is passed. Behold, two rows are still coming after these. New Living Translation. You see, woe back then meant bad things, terrible things, horrible things. So the New Living Translation just translated that word woe into terror, which is a good description. But there's two still coming. And even after, we haven't looked at the, the next trumpet, which is coming up next week, but even after all that, people will still not repent. They can if they want to, but they won't. It reminds me that each day a person lives, they become less likely to respond to the gospel of Christ. There was a survey conducted by Barner Research Group. Now, these numbers can fluctuate depending who you look at and when they were done. But we're speaking about America. We're not speaking anywhere else. We're speaking right here at home in America. Children that are ages 5 through 13 years of age. What is the probability of that group coming to place faith in Christ? Following obedience to baptism, become a Christ follower. Any idea what that probability might be? 32%. Youth, teens, ages 14 to 18, drops to 14%. Anybody above the age of 19, drops to 6%. Our passage today leads us to believe that the main reason that people have for rejecting Christ is the more they refuse and not respond to the gospel the more likely their hearts will become hardened. I'm not saying they can't be saved. That's not my point. I'm saying this becomes more difficult. The more you hear the message, the more you refuse and not respond. As the day grows by, the less likely people will repent and turn to Christ. Like verses 20 and 21 say of this, of this text. I started thinking about the implication of not only looking at how horrible the plague is and what it does, but I think one of our implications as believers is that we need to develop a much higher level of urgency when it comes to sharing the gospel. Every day, every moment, it goes by, hearts are becoming more hardened by the moment. Would you want any of your loved ones to go through what I just read about in the Bible, or we just read about? 
to torment. And remember, each one that happens builds upon itself. It gets worse and worse and worse. Because as I said last week, sin has to be dealt with. God has dealt with it through his son Jesus Christ on his cross. We can give him our lives and let Jesus pay the debt that we can never pay, or we can say, no, he can just punish me forever when that time comes. It's your choice. And that sounds very cold when I say it that way, but that's the truth. I'm going to end with the words. I've shared this with some people already. Uh, the words of a, a gentleman named Vance Habner. He was somewhat a famous 20th century preacher, revivalist in the Southern Baptist life. He wrote this, quote, The real test of how much we believe of prophetic truth is what we're doing to warn men to flee from the wrath to come. To believe the solemn truths of prophecy and then make our way complacently through a world of sin and shame is not merely unfortunate, it is criminal. End of quote. If I love you the way I profess to love you, if I love you as Christ loves you, then I must tell you the truth. Not condescending, not condemning, but share with you the truth about who Christ is. Are you going to make people mad? Yeah. Just like those guys got mad at those two pastors. They're going to call you religious nuts. But if we love them, we're going to tell them about them. And we're not going to back down from that message. Think about the torment and the agony. Perhaps you're here today and you've heard the gospel message time and time again, but that have, you haven't really responded yet. You haven't given Christ your heart. See, it's, it's not joining Forsberg Baptist Church. It's about giving your life, everything you have to Him. You become a member of this church because of relationship with Christ, not the way of getting it. It's a gift. Grace that God offers to you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what ethnicity, what social group, or how much money. It does, all that fades away at the foot of the cross. See, in here as a church, all those things that separate us doesn't mean a thing in here. We're all united under the cross and the shedding of his blood. And if you'd given your life, what is stopping you? You know, it wasn't long ago in Southern Baptist life that we raised our own preachers and we raised our own teachers and we raised our own missionaries from the local congregation. Not about 100 years ago, but historically speaking, 100 years is not that long. You can't tell me that God's not knocking on someone's heart in this room within the sound of my voice calling them to vocational ministry, calling them to be another preacher, calling someone to be a missionary, calling someone to be a, be, uh, be a Sunday school director, calling someone to have a local position in the local church. That's how you tell people. Has it crossed your mind that when you walk out these doors, you're their missionary? You're an ambassador of Christ. Missionaries are not just the North American Mission Board or International Mission Board. You are the missionary. I am the missionary. We like to self, 
justify our own actions, don't we? A little bit of pride involved. We can blame somewhere else. This is our mission field. Where God's put us. And we've seen just a little bit since I've been here. We've seen some impact that's been made, have we not? And I'm speaking to myself as well. I believe that before Christ comes again, before all this stuff spreads in motion, there's going to be another huge awakening. I cannot base that on Scripture. I'm just what's in my heart. But that doesn't give me license to sit down and say, I ain't going to do anything. I should be out there being his witness. Not only telling people about the love of Christ, but demonstrating that. And that can become somewhat difficult at times. Because you know what you need to do that? You need the Holy Spirit. And we'll end with that. Quit trying to be the good Christian on your own because you'll never do it. You need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're already Christian, you have him. You have all the Holy Spirit that you need. It's just us letting go and let him take control of everything. That's the reason why Paul uses the, exact, the uh, illustration about don't get drunk with wine. He's telling us to be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Just like when you, someone gets drunk with alcohol, they do stuff that they wouldn't normally do. Be drunk, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit have complete control of what you're doing. Where are you going? What you're saying? What you're thinking? Surrender that all to him. That's the point. What do you need to let go of? And let God take, take control of it. Look around the room. Your fellow brothers and sisters. Would you like to see more people here? let's do something about it. And it begins with me, and that begins with you. Now, I'm not just telling them to fill up the dictionary for the sake of filling it up. Because you can do more with 10 people completely sold out for Christ than you do for 100 to show up for worship every Sunday and go home. And that is a fact. I implore you to listen to the voice of the Lord as he speaks to your heart this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Most of all, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Father, we can come in your very throne room with confidence knowing you hear us. Father, I pray that continue to move on our hearts and that we will respond in obedience to you. Reach out your mighty arms of love and peace to everyone within the sound of my voice. Come close to your side, O oh God. May many more come to repentance before it's too late. May we be more willing to share the wonderful news, the good news, 
gospel with those around us every day, every hour, every minute, every second. We pray for these things in Christ's name.